the National Archives podcast series, First Lady, The Life and Wars of Clementine Churchill, presented by Sonia Pinnell. Well, thank you all for coming along, and it's actually lovely to be back here. I used to come here a lot when I was um, covering Whitehall and uh, used to have a great time looking at all the files. And I think that's actually sort of um, inbred in me this kind of great curiosity as to the stories behind the files. Often you have to unlock them, and, and that takes uh, looking in other places and, and also sort of slight sort of detective mania, which perhaps I have. I do like to follow things up. Um, <clears throat> Clementine, I must admit, I didn't know very little about her before I started this whole project. There was something about her, though, some letters that she sent Winston in 1940, in particular when he first became Prime Minister, when she was very affectionate, but also quite bossy, um, and certainly in command, I thought, and that she was no subservient, mousy wife. This was very much a marriage of equals. It was an incredibly strong political partnership as well, probably the most important political partnership we've ever had in this country, as I discovered, coming to places such as this, but also going over to the States, to the FDR Presidential Library over there, the Library of Congress, um, all great places, the Churchill Library up in in Cambridge too, and the Bodleian Library in in Oxford, to to name but a few. so, as I say, I've, I've always loved coming to these places and teasing out the stories. Once I came here and saw my own father's name in a file, he was a civil servant, and I happened to know the story behind this meeting, and it was quite extraordinary then, suddenly to see a record of it. So, as I say, this was quite a big detective piece of work. So, although she was Winston Churchill's wife, most people knew very little about her, still know very little about her. I was on Woman's Hour when the book um, came out a few weeks ago, and a very nice, intelligent, young, well-educated woman researcher phoned me up to talk to me beforehand. That's what happens when you go on Woman's Hour. They kind of they do scope, um, as, as the uh, common phrase has it now. Um, and she said to me, do you know, until I heard about your book, I didn't even know Winston Churchill was married. And I think a lot of people actually think that. Well, if he was married, who, who was he married to? Maybe she just stayed at home and baked cakes. She sure didn't just stay at home and bake cakes. She had a cook to do that. But um, for most of her married life, she did. She was a much more formidable person than that in, in statecraft, indeed. What I realised as I began my two or three years of going through files, going through letters, going through memoirs, reading literally hundreds of books and diaries, finding little nuggets all over the place that had never been collected together in one place before, and also Winston Churchill's own words, is that he himself said on the 40th anniversary of their wedding day, my life and any work that I have done it within my life would have been impossible without you. And indeed, she was his greatest advisor, his biggest influence, the most important person in his life, both personally and politically. And yet, yet again, no one knows who she is. I venture to you that if I went out into the street outside and I put a piece of paper over Winston in that photograph and I took her picture up to people in the street and say, who, who is this? Probably 99% of people would ha- have absolutely no idea. And yet, I think... What I discovered was that she is one of the most important British women of the last hundred years, British people of the last hundred years, and quite possibly longer than that. He simply couldn't have done what he did without her. And 
It's not just me who came to that conclusion. Winston Churchill's own chief of staff during the Second World War. No feminist, by the way, General Pug Ismay, not known for his sort of pro-women views in any way, declared or rather concluded after watching them in action very closely over the course of the war that without Clementine, the history of Winston Churchill and the history of the world would have been very different. Yes, again, no one knows who she is, what she liked, what she looks like, what she did. That's why I called it First Lady, because in a sense we've never had a First Lady in this country, or perhaps we have, but the only time we've had one is, is her. I don't think we've had one, certainly we didn't have one before, and I don't think we've had one since. You got two for the price of one here. This was, you know, um, they were both at the top of government, and often when Winston was away, in fact, she would put out fires in the cabinet or deal with rows or, or soothe ruffled feathers. She would certainly see all the secret decrypts, including the ultra um, decrypts from Bletchley Park. Obviously, a lot of the cabinet weren't doing that. She, um, he relied on her completely. Other people at the time realised how important she was, including Attlee, who made her um, a dame in 1946, a title, by the way, she never took up. In 1965, when Winston died, she was made a life peer in her own right. Um, unfortunately, she was 80 by then. She'd always wanted to go into politics on her own count. But at 80, her sight and her hearing was failing. She took her seat on the crossbenches. She got involved in the campaign to abolish the death penalty, but she simply couldn't hear the debates well enough to participate in. We lost a great chance there to have someone in public life who could have done a great deal. Um, she was also granted the, a CB at the end of the First World War for extraordinary amount of work she did in munitions factories. She set up and ran, um, at one time alone, nine huge canteens that could feed 500 workers at the same time. She ran, she managed them, she set them up. She looked after Winston, which was a 24-hour day job. She had children. She, she spearheaded a campaign to persuade people to help um, manufacture gas masks, the first time a woman had ever done anything like this. And yet again, we hardly ever hear about her. She was Winston's spin doctor, his lobbyist, his, his special advisor, um, his permanent secretary, as well as his wife and housekeeper, and goodness knows what else. Um, she was an extraordinarily energetic and important person. So I'm just looking at this because my printer uh, gave out earlier, and I just need to check this. There has been really only one other um, book about her before, which was published about 35 years ago by Mary Soames, her daughter. Um, and it's an excellent, a brilliant book. It is a chronicle, however, from the family's point of view, and even still more from Winston's point of view than from hers in many ways. What no one had really tried to do before was to take a more contemporary look at what she did, taken lots of third-party sources, put together what she did politically as well as personally, and also to give her her due to new generations. So for those people who can dimly remember her, sure, but you know the 20s and 30 and 40-year-olds um, who cannot, and who actually, you know, perhaps once they read her story, would find her really quite inspiring, because none of this came easily to her at all. In fact, although she looks pretty tough there, and you wouldn't take her on, that's how she looked when she was a little girl, and she was so scared that she couldn't go near the man she thought was her father, who wasn't a father, but that's another story. She broke her ankle once, running away from a moth. Um, she didn't really have any friends. She confided in her dog here, Carlo, who sadly 
died under the wheels of a train that she was traveling on. He was trying to join her in the carriage and, and she'd been told to leave him at home. And, and she t told her, children, her own children later that she remembered that she never got over this. So she was a very shy, timid person who had to reinvent herself to survive and succeed as the wife of Winston Churchill. And that was no easy uh, uh, you know, feat, believe me. Um, so she's not very well known. I've established that. And it's instructive to compare her fame with her direct contemporary at the time in America, Eleanor Roosevelt, who is much, much better, better known and has long been seen as a crucial component in, in FDR's success and sort of great legacy. And, and Eleanor Roosevelt has long been a great inspiration to the first ladies who came after her. Hillary Clinton, for example, quite often quote Eleanor Roosevelt. Both Hillary Clinton and Michelle Obama, I'm very pleased to say, are both reading the book, my book this summer, which is very <laughs> exciting. And um, it's coming out uh, over there in October. But what they seem to see in it was, you know, the, what I've managed to find in the correspondence between these two women, Eleanor and Clementine, a little bit of insight as to exactly what their life was like and how involved they were during the war. And there was much in Eleanor Roosevelt's papers over in America that was really interesting about Clementine. And again, I don't think that, that mine had ever really been sort of pursued before. One of the most surprising discoveries in, in all of this work that I did was that how much more important actually Clementine was, how much more powerful Clementine was to her husband um, and, and to her government, her husband's government, than, than Eleanor. As I say, Clementine did all, fulfilled all these roles. She's sort of always protecting Winston's name. She was a sort of direct line to the people. She had a huge mailbag from people with all sorts of problems from, you know, really sort of dangerous air raid shelters where the heating wasn't working or the water was pouring down or the beds were unsafe, whatever. She would try and deal with all of those things. But she would also, as I said before, try and deal with um, problems in, in the Cabinet and elsewhere. Was Eleanor Roosevelt although we know so much about her, wrote letters to her daughter and other people saying, I feel completely shut out. Uh, I've just decided to let the important people get on with the decisions. She had no idea that America had entered the war after Pearl Harbor, um, apart from guessing a lot of people running in and out of FDR's office. He didn't tell her. She felt completely excluded. And there was an evening, in fact, when um, in the White House, when, when Churchill uh, was having a drink with FDR, and, you know, Churchill said, you know, I, I, um, I tell Clemmy everything and, and I see that you, you don't, Eleanor, she didn't even know I was coming to the White House until I arrived and um, that was all true. FDR kept everything from Eleanor and he said to Winston, well, yes, I, I don't tell Eleanor everything. I see that you tell Clemmy everything, but that's because she ha writes a newspaper column and I'm worried that she'll put something in the paper by mistake. Actually, that was, a, that was just a, an excuse. It wasn't a political partnership, despite the great fame that that has, that the Churchills were. I mean, it had been before the war, during the, sort of the New Deal, but certainly not during the war. The relationship between Clementine and Eleanor is also very interesting. These two women together, so there they, there they are, making a broadcast um, in Canada during one of the Quebec conferences, um, partly in French, partly in English. This was very much 
pushed by Eleanor. She wanted to um, encourage Clementine to be more of a public figure, so not only this huge power behind doors, but someone that would go out and, and broadcast after um, what they did as well. But this was a really interesting and terribly important relationship, but no one has ever really looked at it before. And I know this because when I went, met the Roosevelt family, they said, well, we never thought of doing this. No one else has ever thought of doing this. This is fantastic. Um, they actually wrote a lot of letters together. They, they spent quite a lot of time um, together. And there was a sort of an alternative diplomatic channel, if you like, between them, because Winston and FDR did fall out quite often. And during the Second World War, personal relationships were unbelievably important, perhaps more important than any other time in history. It was the chemistry, the sort of insecurities, the fears, the desires, whatever, of a tiny band of people who were leading you know, the allies at that time, that sort of drove things forward. And when things went wrong between the men, these two women would pick up the baton and, and try and paper over the cracks. Here, you know, this is exactly what they were doing. So, I mean, I was very interested as to what did they contribute, you know, how involved were they? Did they learn from each other? And what was it like, those two couples, the Roosevelts and the Churchills? Imagine sort of a dinner party. What was it like between them? And they did meet many times. Well, I can tell you that neither man thought very much of each other's wife. So FDR, not very keen on Jimmy, Churchill, really not keen at all on Eleanor Roosevelt. Um, Eleanor was just not his type. He thought her an unappealing mix of forthright opinion and earnest disapproval, who always seemed to be absent at the sort of the, the crises. Well, we, we know why a bit now. is because she felt excluded and thought there was no point being around. But Churchill thought this was pretty strange because Clementine was always there, you know, with him. The other strange thing that Churchill didn't much care for about, um, sorry, um, I don't know, was the state of the White House. They didn't have rationing, all, all the problems that we had over here, but the White House was apparently filthy. People used to sort of you know, complain. They used to wear white gloves in those days for dinner, and they'd go, they'd go up the banisters and, to dinner, and by the time they got to the top, their white gloves were black. That was nothing. Oh, the, the curtains were a bit rotten and rather dirty, too. In fact, when, they, when the Roosevelts moved out and took the paintings down, apparently the Trumans were horrified at the stains behind them. Anyway, <laughs> during the war, the food was terrible. No problems with, with rationing. Just that, I don't know whether you know, but FDR had an affair sometime before the war. Eleanor knew about it, and some of the people who knew her went to see Henry Morgenthau's son, who was FDR's Treasury Secretary. His, best, his wife was Eleanor's best friend. The son is still alive, and he said this was culinary revenge that went on for decades. <laughs> it was inedible, absolutely inedible. Um, FDR himself said the food would do justice to the automat. The salad was mountains of the most disgusting salad cream and a couple of radishes, and she would have this served every single day. Anyway, so, oh, the other terrible thing was that she did to Churchill, who hated creamy soup. Every time he came, almost every day, every starter, creamy soup. Clementine always found out everyone's big food loves and made sure they got it. So Harry Hopkins, FDR's... Uh, special envoy, love Stilton. Well, you know, the best Stiltons would be found, the best everything would be found to make sure that he was on side. Eleanor didn't think this was her job at all. 
the reverse was Eleanor didn't think much of Churchill. She thought him a bit of a drunken warmonger. She kept, he kept keeping FDR up late at night drinking. He, his bedroom was just down the White, Hall, White House landing from FDR's, and so he could pop in any time, and he did. Not always with an awful lot on either, which uh, sort of shocked the Americans, I think, a little bit. And it certainly shocked uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, who just wished he would go away. Um, and um, she thought that he led FDR astray, these late-night drinking sessions, but also his um, opinions on women and the Spanish Civil War, amongst other things. Actually, I have to give Clementine some credit here, because she was quite a feminist on the quiet, and she lobbied Churchill year after year after year to support female suffrage. And in the end, he did. She never gave up and they had pretty epic rows about that too and so she did change his views although perhaps not as much as Eleanor Roosevelt might have liked okay so if you imagine your dinner party so Eleanor doesn't think much of Churchill Churchill doesn't think much of Eleanor and then Clementine doesn't think much of FDR either because she thinks he's rather vain and he made a terrible mistake first time he met her of calling her Clemmy well, no one did that unless they'd sort of known her for you know several years and were you know really really close, and so that didn't help at all. And um, she thought him rather vain and a little duplicitous. She was always very wary of him and would warn Churchill a lot to be careful because Churchill was much more sort of emotionally transparent, if you like, and 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 you know, he'd say the most incredible things about FDR, about how I love that man and if our friendship ever broke down, it would break my heart and this kind of thing. And she would say, well, you know, just be a bit careful, Winston. But um, um, she realised, her, her intuition was so much better than his, she realised pretty quickly that FDR valued, um, you know, his own tactical advantage above any friendship. I'm not saying that Winston was totally naive, but he could get swept up by the emotion of the moment and sometimes not quite see the tactical way forward. I think FDR was a much colder man than Churchill, but possibly a better politician, not necessarily a better war leader, but I think better politician. Clementine saw many dangers. She warned um, Churchill towards the end of the war. One of her most forthright letters you know, do not speak to anyone else on this subject until I speak to you again, is how she opened one letter about his approach to um, Greece. I mean, strangely, kind of sort of, you know, coming back to haunt us now. Uh, towards the end of the Second World War, he, he made himself quite obviously pro-monarchist, and the king was terribly unpopular in Greece, but also in the States, and he was losing sort of really quite important political support there as a result and she and he was going around sort of saying that the communists there were all murderers and things and she said that you can't just this is not going to work at this moment so please don't talk about it with anyone else until I you know go through it with you so this was Clementine you know keeping him on on the straight and narrow and that was certainly not the only occasion um so FDR was initially starstruck by Churchill. By the time they met, Churchill was also already a global legend. But I think those late-night drinking sessions, you know, he was partly paralysed. He was a very unwell man, and as we know, he died in 1945. They were sort of wearing him out. And also, as the Americans came into the war, you know, threw money, men, equipment into the war, FDR got fed up with Churchill getting all the sort of the glory. He wanted the glory himself. I don't totally blame him for this. He wanted the upper hand. 
um, and he, you know, this is when the cracks, the major cracks in that relationship, the Churchill Roosevelt relationship emerged, and when these two women had to do more to paper it over, and particularly um, Churchill. I mean, in the end, FDR seemed to choose Stalin over Churchill after all, um, you know, for sort of very, in some ways, obvious strategic reasons. But it, it did mean that Churchill was the odd one out. The other thing was that Clementine didn't provide him with sort of uncritical feminine <coughs> adoration, and that's what FDR liked. It wasn't just that one affair, you know. And, okay, he was in a wheelchair. But when he died in 1945... There were four women around him, and not one of them was his wife. And they were all adoring kind of handmaidens, is what Eleanor Roosevelt called them. Um, she knew what was going on. Okay, so there were lots of cross-currents here in the Anglo-American relationship. Obviously, that was all critical. We couldn't win the war without them. Um, so it did fall to paper over the cracks. So how did they do it? Well, they weren't really great friends, exactly. Um, they became very friendly. In some ways, they had um, very little in common, apart from being married to the two men tasked with saving the world, which is obviously quite a lot in common. They looked very different. I mean, you can see here that Clementine, I mean, even in wartime, she believed in looking as glamorous as possible. So she would wash her hair in benzene, cause great alarm, to give it more shine, because often no hot water... She wore pearls and diamonds. And, and as the lady here from the National Archives pointed out, she's, she's ripped off one glove so you can see just how many diamonds she's got on there. She, um, she, and there's quite a lot. I've seen that ring. It's, um, it's worn by one of her descendants now. It's very beautiful. She wore those turbans almost always because that was her tribute to women working in the factories with munitions, other dangerous equipment who had to wear them. Clementine knew the value of political symbolism. So almost always during war years, she was wearing a turban. That was a tribute and a, and a very clever one. But she thought glamour was important. Looking her best was important. It denoted confidence, optimism, some idea, yes, we were going to win. This terrible thing was going to end. Um, and it was a, a different approach from, from Eleanor, who, who was a little bit plain, a little bit sort of windswept sometimes. But Eleanor had this sort of informal, chatty, American style that she'd built up over many years, um, really being FDR's leg man. He couldn't go to a lot of conferences. He couldn't go and meet people. So she had come accustomed to giving speeches on his behalf, becoming a, a really tremendous public figure in her own right, completely independent of him, or almost entirely independent of him. So um, when she came to Britain, which I'll talk about um, Shortly, Clementine watched how she did it, how she was with crowds. She would, she would be informal. She would go up and chat to them individually. Here was a woman from an upper-class British background, naturally very shy, very reserved. Remember the little girl? Who saw how effective this was, how effective Eleanor Roosevelt was. She knew she was really powerful behind the scenes, unbelievably powerful, I've discovered. But she knew also that she had to become a public person too to make herself as useful as possible. She never, by the way, competed with Winston. It was all about backing up what he did, making it possible for him to lead the nation to victory. So I'll come back to that in a minute. But they also did have very much in common. So they were married to the people, the men, you know, tasked with saving the world. They were of a similar age. They were both sort of aristocrats of their sort. They both had a concern for the poor. 
this idea that you had to have an empathy for those less privileged than yourself, this is, you know, the, the turban is a proof of that. They both hated gambling. Both of them had seen the terrible pain um, that gambling could cause, and they were very worried about their own husband's extravagance. And as a result, some people thought they were crashing bores, both of them. They both had that sort of reputation. I think totally undeserved in both cases. A lot of people who are still alive who knew Clementine say what a, a tremendous person she was to have at a party. She had an incredibly loud laugh, much louder than Winston's, which was sort of a quiet chuckle. Um, she would throw her head back. So that, that is not a, a sort of shy, boring woman, I think. I think, you know, she looks like she'd be quite fun in her leopard skin coat and, and her turban and things. So I think unfair to both of them, but that's, that's their <coughs> reputation, which they suffered for. They'd both been to school in England, by the way. Eleanor Roosevelt, when her parents died, came to school here. And they'd both had an inspirational headmistress who told them, yes, go for it, you have promise, you, you are clever, believe in yourself. You know, the sort of headmistress we all would have loved. And in fact, during the Dardanelles crisis, when the Churchill's fortunes were really, really low, Clementine went back to her old school and saw her headmistress, who was about the only person who, would, who was still talking to her. So they both endure, endure difficult, painful, fearful childhoods, and they'd both been considered plain when young. I mean, Clementine never really shows in photographs, but people say she was absolutely stunning. And she had, her eyes, you can see they're very big, they were really the most amazing sort of wedgewood blue. They were quite dazzling. And she had this laugh, wonderful skin, teeth, bone structure. Yeah, Eleanor hadn't really ever had that. But Clementine had been considered very plain when young. They'd both lost an infant child too, by the way, which I think united them. And their husbands were, in a way, I mean, they were egotistic, clearly, they were also quite childish, both of them. They never really grew up, and they, they had to be managed. And I think that probably Clementine was better at managing Winston than Eleanor was at um, FDR. Also, I think, important to know is that they, um, they both thought they were terrible mothers, and they may have been right. And they were both terribly prone to depression. And one of the things that came really loud and clear was that Clementine's depression, particularly after the war, was way more serious in a different league of seriousness from Churchill's Black Dog, which the family, you know, the family members I spoke to was largely hyperbole. Yes, of course he was down after the Dardanelles. He was down when his career was not going well. We all get down when things aren't going well. She had ECT on at least one occasion after the war, was hospitalised several times, and a nurse came up to me at a talk recently and said, I was one of the nurses for her, and I was told to padlock all the windows. And that's how bad it was. And so, giving what she did, what 24 hours a day, seven days a week, to her country and her husband, I think completely wore her out after the war. And I think both of them were their, their husband's consciences, too. I mean, uh, um, Clementine got this huge mailbag, as I said, from people with all sorts of problems. And they would say things like, now, now I've told you I know something will be done about it. They saw her as their champion, and she tried her very, very best not to let them down. And she got a reputation for getting things done. So, of course, the letters just came in more and more and more, and she tried to deal with them as much as she could. So one of her other jobs then was to try and repair that um, relationship with the Americans when she could. 
And so after Winston and FDR fell out, which they did on time to time, Clementine would, would send a, a, a letter really quickly to, to Eleanor saying you know, how much she loved the daughter, how wonderful FDR was, quite gushing, not like the real Clementine at all, but just seeing, can, can I sort of make up for this in a sort of woman-to-woman -woman sort of axis? The first time they met was when Eleanor came to Britain in October 1942 to find out more about what it was like for women here uh, during the war and to visit American troops. Um, FDR was busy with the war. She'd been shut out. He saw this trip as a sop to her hurt feelings. And so she came over. Eleanor um, Clementine observed her um, very closely. They went to all sorts of places together, including Canterbury, where by this point both of them were becoming sort of like pop stars. As soon as they arrived, hundreds of people flocked towards them. I mean, they were sort of a symbol of hope, and they had a wonderful day talking to lots and lots of people. And then they could actually hear the guns over the channel. It was it was a sort of poignant day. All the papers carried um, stories about it. The following day, and some people think this might have been the Germans sort of almost wreaking revenge, Canterbury was, was blanket bombed during daylight. And as they probably thought, some of those people, possibly quite a lot of those people who'd greeted them the previous day, were now dead. And this had an extraordinary effect on Eleanor Roosevelt, who wrote back to FDR saying that you just had to bow down to the British spirit. And this, this certainly bound them together you know, for, for the rest of the war. That popularity, that ease with people, persuaded Clementine to open up. She started having her own press conferences. So the, the wife of the Prime Minister started having her own press conferences. Her first one was in Washington, where people, <clears throat> the American press, hailed her as this absolute master of the media. She was jokey. She was confident. She was, um, I'm joking when she, it was right to be, but confident all the way through. Very serious. She was incredibly well-versed, well-rehearsed. She was an absolute star. Um, she'd, had, she'd stepped out of her own reserve character. She'd seen Eleanor Roosevelt do it. And now this was something that she did more and more. In fact, when she was in Moscow, she held press conferences there too. Can you imagine Samantha Cameron going to um, Moscow and holding you know, a big press conference on her own or going to Washington and doing the same? She met Stalin on her own on at least one occasion. She did all sorts of things. She also used this new persona to set up something called the Aid for Russia Fund, which some of you may have heard of. She raised the equivalent of nearly £300 million pounds to, from a, a country that was virtually bankrupt to re-equip um, Russian hospitals that destroyed by the Nazis and helped the Russians in, in many ways. And Stalin was so unbelievably impressed by Mrs. Churchill, he invited her to Moscow to give her um, a very prestigious, here she is in Moscow, not with Stalin. There's no picture of her with Stalin, by the way. He was a bit too canny to allow that. But she was invited for six weeks to tour Russia on a sort of, a, kind of like a, a personal victory tour where she was lauded in the streets. People threw violets at her. She was such a star. She'd raised so much money and done so much and cemented Anglo-Soviet relations. Stalin and Churchill by the stage couldn't stand each other, you know. And this was absolutely crucial, but she could see that the fund was helping keep us on side with Russian with Russia as long as we could. We needed their men, frankly, to fight, particularly 
in the Pacific. We needed to keep that very, very shaky alliance going as long as possible. And we also needed to, to quiet discontent here back in Britain that we weren't doing enough to help the Soviets. And so she, she saw the political benefits of this. She went out there and she met Stalin on her own, or the ogre in his den, as she put it, in the Kremlin. Extraordinary um, meeting. And he gave her this very uh, important honour, the, the, the um, banner of labour. So, <clears throat> as I said, she was involved in all the um, major decisions of the war. She knew all about um, Bletchley Park. She was now becoming this very public figure. Um, she used to have great critics in Whitehall who used to think when she first arrived with Churchill, who is this interfering woman? She has no electoral mandate. Why is she telling me what to do? She, she won them all round. They all realised how important she was and how much Churchill and his government relied on her. And when he was at one of his conferences and Herbert Morris and Ernest Bevan fell out spectacularly, she invited them in alternately to lunch and got them back together again. She, um, you know, she did all of these sorts of things. Uh, she kept aptly in touch with what was going on. And yet she had been this, this very shy person. So as I say, this didn't come naturally to her, and I think probably added to the depression that she felt after the war. She simply had to reinvent herself as someone who was quite extraordinary. One of the things, actually, I remember <clears throat> that she did, she wrote a letter to FDR about Eleanor again. This was during one of the sort of rocky periods about how, so she wrote to, Ellen, uh, to FDR about how Eleanor's presence, this was when she was in the UK, how her presence was having on, the effect that his, her presence was having on our women and girls. When she appears, their faces light up with gladness and welcome. And then on Eleanor's handling of the press, I was struck by the ease, friendliness and dignity with which she talked with the reporters and by the esteem and affection with which they evidently regard her. There she is being her ambassador extraordinary. Eleanor, we know, found Clementine attractive, fun, good company. We know this from some very diaries and things that she wrote, letters to other people but strangely constrained at the beginning by her husband's notion that she should remain in the background. So she was difficult to get to know. And she wrote, she's had to assume a role because of being in public life. The role is now part of her, but one wonders what she's like underneath. So she was difficult to find out, you know, much about. Clementine did slowly lower her guard with Eleanor and, and with others. And there was this um, female solidarity, the flip side being keeping the alliance going. And one of the times that that also came into being was when Eleanor was in the UK and she was invited to a dinner party at um, Downing Street in her honour. And unfortunately, the, the conversation with Churchill got round to the Spanish Civil War and um, Eleanor Roosevelt had, had rather different opinions on that to him and asked why more had not been done for the Republicans. Well, Winston was furious. No woman, apart from Clementine, would ever dare to confront him in public like this. And he was absolutely furious and rose from the dining table, sort of muttering something about, well, we would all, you, you would have lost your head as well if we'd done anything to help them. The atmosphere was tense, I think, is sort of, you know, an understatement. So what did Clementine do at this moment? Well, she leant across the table and she said pointedly, I think perhaps Mrs. Roosevelt is right. 
Now, was that female solidarity, or was it actually that she saw this was a bit dangerous? Eleanor could go back to FDR and say, that guy's just a warmonger, he's an imperialist, we shouldn't actually back him up, you know, we should be really wary of him. I think there may have been a little bit of both, but certainly it, may, it, meant, you know, it, it made sure that Eleanor did not go back to America full of anger or resentment or, or you know, um, remembering this, this incident over the dinner table, though she did write about it in her diary. She went back full of admiration for the UK and what was happening here and Clementine and what she was doing and how amazing Clementine managed to look at all times when there were bombs falling all about. And so what she did, which was really, really unusual for her, she took an hour and a half out of her frantic schedule when she got back and she for once had her hair and nails done and apparently her staff said this was quite extraordinary they weren't quite sure what it was all about but it was almost that you know she thought okay well I've got these other things right but now I want to to have that as well so she her, her tour of of the UK was triumphant she certainly had um had a big impact on um Clementine who now who now really sort of pushed herself forward as a public figure. So here she is visiting a factory, and there she's dancing with one of the workers. This is someone who's unbelievably shy, but she's reinventing herself. And, you know, this went down hugely well, as I'm sure you can imagine. And here she is with Winston's, another factory, again, really pushing herself forward. As a politician, actually, she knows how important that is, showing an interest, asking questions, dancing with one of the workers... By the end of the war, she was a formidable politician in her own right, although, she, as I say, she never actually competed with Winston. She backed him up. In fact, towards the end of the war, his popularity began to fall for all sorts of reasons. His own powers were slightly fading. He was tired, unbelievably tired. Um, popularity, you know, people were fed up with what was going on at home. He didn't manage to project a rosy future. We know that, and that's one of the reasons why he lost the 1945 election. As his popularity fell, hers rose and rose and rose. She became phenomenally popular, as people in, in, um, in Whitehall realise. I mean, the difference is that after the war, she disappeared from public life. After the war, Eleanor Roosevelt, with her husband dead, wanting to find a new role for herself, went to work for the UN and became a really, really big global figure. She was even touted as a presidential candidate in 1952. In a sense, she has paved the road for Hillary Clinton now. Clementine just disappeared into obscurity. She was made a life peer to later, as I've said, so nothing was really done with all those talents. She wanted Winston to retire from politics way before she did. And it was almost the Americans who were most surprised at the sort of this waste of this person who'd learned so much, both on the, you know, behind the scenes and in public as well. And, and Henry Morgenthau, FDR's um, Treasury Secretary, who came over and watched her in action towards the end of the war and said, that dame is unbelievable. She is just like Mrs. Roosevelt. And yet... We know nothing about her now, and as I say, if I took a picture outside, I don't think anyone would know about her. So in a sense, what I've tried to do with the book is to paint a little bit of a picture, give her her due slightly, because um, it's long overdue, and I think 
she deserves it. And there she we are, 1945. There she is towards the end of her life. Always, always immaculate with her child. And there, after the war, she and Eleanor Roosevelt, long after FDR's death, used to meet up for a gossip and a an natter. And that, that went on until Eleanor Roosevelt died in the 60s. Clementine herself lasted until 1977. So I give you Clem Clementine Churchill, our one and only First Lady. Thank you very much. This talk was recorded on the 11th of August 2015 at the National Archives, Kew. This podcast is copyright to the National Archives, all rights reserved. It is available for reuse under the terms of the Open Government Licence.